0: Hello and welcome back to the edition podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Charlotte Henry. I wrote earlier how kind of the first quarter of 2023 was a bit of a chaotic one for the media. Uh, And I think that's worth exploring a bit more because we've seen a lot of changes going on in the media industry. And I'm very pleased to have Adweek's Mark Stenberg with me. How are you, Mark?
1: I'm doing well. Thank you for having me.
0: I'm so pleased to have you back on the show. It's been far, far, far too long. Now, You've covered this in lots of different ways, but you wrote one particularly good story called Publishers Par Down Their Portfolios Following Pandemic m and it's true, isn't it? Across tech, across media, uh, while we were all stuck at home with nothing else to do, uh, people involved in media m got very excited, didn't they? Got very busy.
1: Yeah, and it's, I mean, I think we end up playing like an interesting game of like, you know, hindsight is 2020, like, were these mistaken acquisitions? I think that's a bridge too far. But I think it is fair to say that in 2021, especially in early 2022, before the Fed raised interest rates, and before, you know, money became more expensive to lend and borrow, uh, publishers were looking at the pandemic landscape and saying, this is a great time to buy things at a bargain, especially as we're flush with cash. I mean, 2021 was a landmark year for many publishers setting historic mm-hmm. revenue records. So the the forces all kind of came together to encourage a real flurry of M&A activity. And I think, yeah, now what we're seeing is, again, not necessarily, you know, buyer's remorse, but a fair bit of, okay, now that the economy has shifted directions, we have to cost cut a little bit what can we do with these properties to maybe make them more efficient? Or how can we reassess and maybe say, one out of this portfolio that we acquired might not make sense? Can we spin this off? Can we sell this, etc. So it's really just a reassessing that I think w- has been prompted by, you know, sort of the the, the shift in economic fortune.
0: Yeah, it is clearly an economic driven story, whether it's interest rates going up, as you quite rightly pointed out, whether it's the cost of living being more difficult for people, so people are like, "Do I really need that subscription? Do I really need to pick this up? Mm-hmm. Is there anything on Netflix this week? I can cancel my subscription for a month or two You know all these different factors in the wider media environment mm-hmm. um are playing into things, and I guess that puts strain across that does put strain across the media industry and make them think, "Is this a property that I need to keep owning? Mm-hmm. I think the other thing I'd like your theory on this. Uh, And it might be a bit of a basic one, but I actually think, you know, 2020, 2021, even towards, you know, throughout lots of 2022 in different ways, we were quite restricted in what we could do. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, you didn't worry about having another subscription because you weren't spending your money on anything else. You needed some form of entertainment. A lot of these digital properties were the best way to have our entertainment, streaming, publications we wanted to read, whatever. Obviously now... We can do all sorts of things. We can leave our houses again. We can see human beings in real life, in restaurants and bars. Mm-hmm. And maybe you're spending less time reading things, watching things. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you should read Adweek in the edition in your time. But, you know, apart from that, people have... Rest- and I think, I wonder if that's putting pressure on these things as well. People are seeing things in their portfolio and they're like, oh, people are not really that interested in it anymore.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I I feel like you see that really acutely in two of these instances. The first of one, this is actually a little bit of a scooplet. I'm I'm working on this story right now, so
0: this should be out by the time uh, the show goes out to people. We'll make sure we we'll link to it.
1: Yeah, okay. So it's when the show's out, this will no longer be news. Uh, But so we're talking about Vox Media, right? And and they made the story that I wrote because they spun off now this, right? Mm -hmm. And that to me is an example of. They acquired these properties. Maybe this one doesn't make Explain so much sense. Explain for to listeners them. who
0: don't know what now this is or was.
1: Yeah, now this is a sort of a social video publication that really came from the Group Nine acquisition that they made in December 2021. Um, and You've probably
0: seen these videos in your feed. They're the like green and black logo that are like, of viral type news clips and things like that very
1: very associated with like the facebook mid 2010s social kind of justice uh you know here's what you need to know about the dakota access pipeline like in a one minute video kind of thing um so but so they spun off now this the news that is coming down the pipe next week is that they're also rebranding another one of their or not rebranding but adjusting the strategy of Another one of the acquisitions that they got in that December, 2021 buyout of a company called Thrillist, which is like, I mean, it's actually kind of hard to put a finger on what Thrillist is, which is maybe why they're focusing, uh, focusing its its, uh, mission a little bit, but they were saying it's a general news thing that was all about uh, kind of like what to do in your city uh, to a degree, but it had leaned a little bit too much into general interest reporting Um, and now they've hired a new editor-in-chief, actually the former editor-in-chief of Mel Magazine, and they're going to change its direction to focus more specifically on being like a travel guide and telling you where to go and what to do when you're there, right? Which is exactly what you're saying. I mean, it's really in line with people are traveling. Again, travel is one of the huge booming industries in terms of ad spend. Um, And a lot of publishers are saying, well, we need to have a travel property. Uh, And so for Vox Media... They're taking Thrillist, which was dipping its toe for sure with like city guides and saying like, going forward, this is going to be our travel property. It pairs really well with Eater because uh, they can do, you know, when you're in Charlotte, like here's, you know, name, pun, not when you're in Austin, here's where you can eat, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so that's a really clear example of them looking at like the times and saying, okay, like, let's have-
0: Go Hornets.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, And so then you have kind of the other thing here, uh, which is I think Recurrent Ventures, Mm -hmm. they spun off Savour, which is this really great food property. Uh, And I think you have a little bit of that, too, where I think they were happy having this like food property during the pandemic when maybe a lot more people were cooking and stuck at home, etc., uh, now I think some of the food consumption patterns, at least food media, has shifted from what can I cook to where can I go eat? You know what I mean? And, to get me the
0: hell out of my kitchen.
1: Yeah. So, you know, Savour does both. And I'm excited to see how it's able to fare as a, as a standalone company. But I do think that that also reflects the changing media consumption patterns of what we were interested during the pandemic versus what we're interested in now. That's just one of a number of factors, I think, animating some of these decisions.
0: The other thing your comments highlight to me, and I don't want to go too much on this tangent, but I think it's important, is speciality and niches really matter. Mm. Your example of Thrillist getting too much into general news. Well, that's a really hard game to play, unless you're the New York Times, unless you're, you know, The Guardian, whoever. I mean, you and I are talking the day after BuzzFeed, announced a whole load of layoffs, and we we should touch on that briefly in a second. But the general news is hard to do, and it's even harder to monetize. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, actually, unless you're one of the kind of big players, sometimes being in a niche is much better online, and maybe some of these portfolio managers are realizing that, that they've got to have a key property in those key niches as opposed Mm -hmm. to trying to compete with the mega newspapers of the world.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the trend toward niche is one of the prevailing trends of the last two years in the media industry. Absolutely. And it's definitely a corrective to everything that happened in the last decade, where the models of the BuzzFeeds and the BDGs and the Voxes and the Vices was we'll get a billion people to visit our website. They don't have to care about Vice. They just needed to come for this article and we'll monetize that with ads. And if we do this at enough scale, then the math will work out. And I feel like you had a number of threats basically upend that model and that line of thinking in the last two to three years. We've just seen those companies really come back down to earth in a serious, if depressing way. Uh, And you see a lot of the new media startups uh, you know, launching nowadays do start as super niche. They start like on email, they have 10 reporters, they cover very specific microbeats, they serve very targeted audiences, and then they build from there. Uh, and I feel like we're or, really- Or they don't,
0: and they're, they just dominate that niche. I'm thinking yeah. of the Anchor, Sean McNulty was on uh, the mm. last episode. And, you know, that the Anchor by any stretch of the imagination is a fantastic business in mm. its niche. Is expanding, mm. but staying very much in its domain, in its world, and not trying to be what it isn't. And I think that for many publishers is the way forward, isn't it?
1: Yeah. And it speaks to this other phenomenon that I think, you know, we've probably both read about and discussed a little bit, which is this, the internet is shrinking, traffic is getting harder to come by social platforms, which were previously hoses for audiences, just spraying traffic at publishers, those are beginning to tighten up and the drip is beginning to dry. Uh, And then you have even search potentially coming under a paradigm shift and that's a massive source of traffic for publishers so i think in light of that more more publishers are saying look if we can only serve a small audience let's quadruple down on the revenue that we can get from them we'll have subscriptions we'll have events we'll have affiliate programs we'll have audio we'll have whatever so even if we only get a million fans that'll be enough to sustain us and help us grow which is just diametrically opposite from the sort of mindset that that presided over the growth of the last decade.
0: So. all I could think of when you were talking about Vice is that amazing scene from page one um, with David Carr in the Vice newsroom, <laughs> just being like, why are you trying to take it? I mean, he wasn't being so dismissive, but he was like, you know, we've had people in these places for a long time. If you haven't seen page one inside the New York Times, it's great. And it's great just for that scene. um, yeah. But... Yes, you're right that these niches are important, that this sort of quadrupling down, if you're going to do something, maybe we've gone from a thousand true fans to a million true fans you need now. Yeah. Uh, which is kind of scary. But it, people are not just doing the one thing. They're not just doing written content anymore, are they? Uh, you know, talking of this portfo- these portfolios, within these portfolios, people mm. are going, okay, so we've got this property. How do we get the most out of the property in the brand, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, they're going. What's the podcast we can do? And who can host it? What's the YouTube we can do? Yeah, what, uh, you know, what products can we push via affiliate marketing, etc., etc., et, cetera, et, cetera, et cetera. There, I think your expression of quadrupling it down is quite right. Um, do you think we're ever going to get that kind of flurry of M and A again? Is that just done now? Uh, people no, it- learn their lesson.
1: These these things are cyclical. I mean, I don't think that we're moving away from M&A as a concept, but a variety of economic factors have conspired to, to have it be such that I don't think we're going to see that kind of activity for another few years. I was at a conference earlier this year where somebody was talking about this exact subject and they just said, you know, on the other hand, who's going to buy it? I mean, the money that was sloshing around in that mid 2010s Is dried up to a degree. I mean, Silicon Valley is really starting to to rain back and be a little bit more profitability minded. And then the big players like the Disney's of the world or the Warner Brothers, they all have debt sheets with billions of dollars of back pay that they have to get rid of. So they're not really in an acquisitive state anymore. And even the tech players, the Metas and the Googles, They can't even really make acquisitions anymore because of antitrust scrutiny. So you have this issue where like the money's not really there. The interest isn't really there. And now we're starting to see some of this, like I said, you know, pseudo buyers remorse of you have an entirely different financial situation where, yeah, the factors that allowed people to spend so freely have not just stopped, but almost reversed. And so, yeah, you have a lot of publishers saying, okay, well, we we have what we have. How can we get more out of it, be more efficient about it? Uh, and that's that's causing them to, to take a hard look at their portfolio and make some some difficult decisions.
0: I think we have to be blunt as well. There was a lot of rubbish out there. <laughs> no, but seriously, there was a lot of stuff that was like not worth the time and money some of these the parent companies were spending on it. It was more noise than, you know, signal a lot of the time. It was SEO driven to try and get the clicks and the revenue. And if we've moved on from that a bit, which we, we clearly have, and this is not a new phenomenon, we've moved on from this quite a few years ago. I'm not necessarily sorry about that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is. It's a, it is is, that a bit harsh. It's not harsh. I agree mostly. I mean, you see this last decade. I mean, again, there's so many different factors here that it's like difficult to pin this on one thing, but you have like consumer trust and news at an all time low. And Mm -hmm. I think that that's the result of a lot of things, but I think one factor that played a role in it was this massive proliferation of low quality content uh, whose sole purpose in life was to be so outrageous that it attracted somebody to visit a website and generate some small amount of ad revenue. Uh, And I think that the internet landscape has shifted. Like we're saying that traffic has kind of gone the way of the dinosaur. And uh, these publishers who were not really serving a core audience or really just provided very superficial kind of lightweight entertainment content, we're seeing that that is going to have a lot harder of a time existing. And a theory that I've been kind of like shopping around, I mean, this is like challenging to see this because – I can't really comment on what the news landscape was like before my time. You know what I mean? But like,
0: yeah, and you were only 18. So, you know, (laughs) Like,
1: my understanding is like, what was the I guess, you know, in the analog era when everything was a print magazine or whatever, like you still had to have some defining point of view or some specific subject matter that you covered or you know, there was still like a but level. There was
0: still the general news brands, you know, the major newspapers.
1: Definitely. In America, I'm thinking of like, there's like a USA Today whose whole thing was like, we're going to be very superficial. But <laughs> I, I just, I I can't help but think that like the the models of some of those digital media companies were trying to do something at a scale that had never really been done before. And I think we're finding out that th- maybe it's, impossible to have a media company that like exists by super serving millions or billions of people. And that like, you have to start with this core base of really fanatical readers who are going to pay you and patronize you. And then you can build on top of that, but you can't build a media company without that base. You can't build a company off of ambivalent readers. And I think that that's what the last decade was trying to do. And I feel like now we're seeing that that uh, is sort of a, a, a failed route.
0: Yeah, uh, we didn't really touch on, and we should, the point you made about search changing, because that's really important. Because, I mean, there have been threats from Google, haven't there, that it's not even going to send traffic to people. It's just going to show you the answer. And it does this in lots of ways anyway. Shows you the answer to the question you put in just at the top of the search page, doesn't it? You don't really have to go anywhere or click anywhere. Yeah. Which obviously is a disaster for news outlets particularly the kind of thing that was you know the type of thing where you're talking about the lower grade crime mm-hmm. for seo content
1: yeah i mean um there's a writer named kyle chayka he has a column for the new yorker where he kind of writes about how algorithms shape daily life and he's written recently about this idea of a post-platform internet and i feel like it sort of encapsulates some of the themes that we're talking about here which is like when I'm trying to like doomsday scenario prepare to to me, there's a part of me that's like, if you're a publisher, you might benefit from planning for a future in the not too distant future in which you're not getting traffic from social media or you're not getting traffic from search or you're not, you know, like, I know this, it's crazy, but it's like, it's worth maybe thinking to yourself, what do we do in a situation where those two spigots completely go dry how well, look you, at what happened with Substack
0: and uh, Twitter. You know, mm-hmm. it, many Substack publications themselves are not very big, but it was always a big deal to try and drive traffic from Twitter to your newsletter. One day, there was a bust-up between Elon Musk and Substack. That traffic basically was removed overnight, completely mm-hmm. throttled. Mm-hmm. If you you know if you don't own the platform it you know it's not your playground you can play on it maybe but people can shut the gates at any point can't they? Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. So
0: those yeah. So so those you know you described them actually in your stories distressed properties, Mm -hmm. which obviously were the the properties that were not doing so well, which maybe needed a revamp or shutting down. Mm -hmm. Those are the type of things that relied heavily on social and search traffic.
1: Yeah, I mean the yes. Yes and no. I mean, the 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 prime example of a distressed property that would be appealing for an acquisition effort would be one that is sort of down on its luck, but also has brand equity. People know the name, right? So, like in that sense, that's something that we're seeing with some of these legacy media properties. Like this whole reason Dot Dash bought Meredith is because like Dot Dash was killing at SEO, but ultimately when you search for, you know enchilada recipe and one result comes from um you know serious eats which is well like no no let's say uh what's the meredith food property southern southern living or something like that and you get one result from southern living and then you get another from spruce eats which is a dot dash property that nobody had heard of you know because it's five years old or whatever um
0: oh so people, old that's ancient internet yes yeah,
1: maybe it's 10 years old i don't want to like downplay Ooh. spruce but we see that there's an affinity from consumers to gravitate toward titles that they're familiar with. Right. So that's why Dot Dash was like, even if we have the SEO figured out, we need that legacy equity. And that's why they bought Meredith because now they can have the best of both worlds. Um, so when we're talking about distressed properties that are prime for acquisition, they might not be killing it at, at at search at the moment. But part of the thinking is that they could, that they do have these built-in audiences, that they do have name brand recognition that separates them. And 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 it's really something that can't be replicated with technology. You just have to have been around 100 years to have that kind of advantage. So that can be really helpful in this world where maybe traffic goes sideways and people don't have a way to you know find things on search that can I think be another sort of feather in the cap of some of these legacy titles that mm. that have those baked in audiences uh, and maybe aren't so reliant on on search have a little bit more of a direct relationship with their readers so
0: I mean in some ways that indicates that maybe there'll be more MA activity and that you could see some of these deals where the old and the new, for want of a better phrase, come together, actually happen. We could see yeah. more of that.
1: Definitely. Well, and that was some, that was like the big thing in 2021 I felt like it was happening all the time was like, here are these legacy publishers getting acquired by digital media upstarts, and, yeah, it's a perfect marriage, right? I actually know – I just wrote a story on um, the ownership group or – you know, theoretical ownership group. I guess the, the the acquisition is still pending a shareholder approval. But the people who acquired the National Enquirer, which is this mm-hmm. like great example of a brand that everybody's heard of, you've seen it on newsstands. It's been around for a hundred years. It didn't really have a digital presence. This group bought it and is saying, "Yeah, our whole strategy is put this on the internet because people are super familiar with it and it's going to really do well in that regard." Um, but they're also planning to make a number of other acquisitions. Uh, is not something that made it into my story but um, they're planning to basically apply this same model that we're talking about but with tabloids <laughs> and are like what are all the tabloids that people are familiar with on a name brands uh, you know name brand yeah. basis um, why don't we buy those tie them all together share a bunch of back-end resources and just own the tabloid internet it's space nice, yeah. which is not a very esteemed space to be in uh but certainly one that you know there's always a demand for yeah it's obviously be, a different space
0: in the us and the uk
1: mm. wait how's so? that yeah.
0: well you know the Probably tabloids
1: right here in the uk
0: well i mean that's that's what i've heard yeah <laughs> i mean the tabloids do have their fun here in the uk <laughs> i mean i'll send you off air some great great front pages from some of the tablets, but you know, the Sun is the most is the big and the Daily Mail mm-hmm. are huge newspapers. The Daily Mail, obviously, is, Mail Online is basically the one of the biggest news sites in the world, how, where you measure it. So these are influential properties. Um, I think we should give people a, a bit of a, a context of how crazy things got, actually during the pandemic because you wrote in your story in the media and telecommunications sector overall deal volume jumped 48% in 2021 and overall deal value rocketed 83% to $941 billion. That's a huge peak and a huge jump.
1: Yeah, this was, I mean, to be very clear, that first clause in the media and telecommunications sector that's se- telecommunications is like
0: sure
1: AT&T you know those were the massive acquisitions where it's like 40 50 billion dollars that, that was one...
0: data from KPMG wasn't it KPMG, yeah yeah, right? yeah
1: so that unfortunately those two things got grouped together it was hard to find just media MA. uh but regardless there was a massive jump from 2020 to 2021 I mean 2021 I think is being in recent memory one of the biggest years for m a certainly in the 21st century um so it certainly was a was a banner year, and I think people are I always see it as where the snake sort of eats the big deer, and then you see the deer like going through the body of the snake oh. as it digests it. That's how I'm like twenty twenty one was eating the deer, and now we're still this kind is of
0: not the image we need like, on the edition podcast,
1: kind of like you know the painful processing uh part of the of the acquisition that's where we are now, and that's why we're seeing um you know maybe some of this being uh, reconsidered or reconfigured because yeah it yeah. was just massive a lot a, a big bite was was taken in 21 yeah,
0: people there's a bit of gluttony wasn't there in the MA space mm. during those years because as i said that was what people had to do it was the spaces people were interested uh we've talked about some of the older quote-unquote digital media brands i guess we have to end this conversation really by talking about buzzfeed mm. and buzzfeed news which as i said the day before we recorded this podcast. Uh, We learned that it was going to shut down ultimately. Uh, It had closed already. BuzzFeed News UK was already no more, but the BuzzFeed News, the main BuzzFeed News, is on its way to shutting down. I I mean, it's kind of sad, really. It did some fantastic work. People think of some of the silly stuff on BuzzFeed, you know, the dress, the dress, uh, and some of the other stuff that was on that site. But... There was some serious news done there, and what it was doing at the time was quite revolutionary in that it was on a site that was fun and had the listicles and the quizzes and everything else, and there was a hard news side to it. Part of me is kind, kind of sad it's shutting down, but the other part of me hasn't looked at BuzzFeed News for years, so maybe that's kind of sums it all up, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, definitely sadness and empathy are the first things, because we're talking about a lot of people losing their jobs. Going to bed. I mean, with the insider layoffs, I was going to bed yeah. last night thinking hundreds of people lost their jobs today, just like me. And the reason I have a job and they don't have a job is just luck and, and situational happenstance. I, I was working at Insider before this. I very well could have been laid off had I still been there. Um, so it's just poor luck. There's really not much more to it on the journalist side. On the business side, um, yeah, you know, BuzzFeed News was, I think the product of you know zero interest rate policy like in many ways like we were discussing like it had essentially one source of revenue which was advertising it's famously hard to generate substantial advertising revenues against hard news for a variety of reasons it didn't have any sort of subscription product and they'd been cutting it year after year after year for the last you know at least two years um and so they weren't producing quality content at the kind of clip that they once were, you have that combined with the fact that the that the monetization is, is weak and BuzzFeed in general is under a microscope. Um, so to a degree, it felt a little bit inevitable, but it's really one of those situations where it's like, oh, I can't imagine that now BuzzFeed is going to spring back to profitability in some Insane way. I think the problems still plaguing BuzzFeed are still plaguing BuzzFeed. Now they've gotten like a little bit of a, you know, um, what do you call that? The millstone around their neck is, is a little bit lighter. uh, But I don't think that this really reverses its fortunes. And it's, it's just sad. Hopefully, something else is able to come out of this. It, It really goes back to what we're talking about of like this model BuzzFeed started with, let's have a newsroom with hundreds of people, and then just got pared down and down and down and down nowadays the model goes in reverse let's have a newsroom of 10 people add on to it when we're able to add on to it add on to it build into something sustainable um but which is yeah,
0: arguably a much better way of doing it
1: it is it's maybe i wouldn't say it's easier um but, no, it's but better, it's better business fundamentals right. and it makes more common sense yeah to to build and not get you know ahead of your skis um so hopefully and
0: puts the journalists under less risk you know if you're there you're part of a small team trying to build a thing Mm -hmm. you're not perhaps some going to be vulnerable to layoffs in quite the same way yeah you would hope
1: yeah one does just wonder like i don't think that all of these journalists now you know if you have two operations that were employing let's say collectively 300 people got laid off making that number up you know you it's going to take i can't do math um 30 different products of 10 people to get back up to that number and you're not gonna you're not gonna see that so it's it's challenging to see how we eventually replace all of these jobs at least immediately um and so you could make the argument that as a whole the news information ecosystem suffers uh in situations like this but you know
0: yeah because some some journalists will inevitably some properties will close whether it's the kind of m&a type stuff that's you know the time properties that have been caught up in the M&A uh, excitement that we've been talking about for most of the show whether it's the older things like BuzzFeed which had a, a news thing a news operation and then have had to shut that down uh, when all that kind of is happening eventually journalists fall out the ecosystem right which is you know some people just change careers whatever and that's yeah. kind of sad right we're going to end on a positive note can you see a bit of a you said there was no kind of you know you think that m&a will be pared down but can you can you see some good coming from that will we get more efficient better run producing better content news properties
1: yeah absolutely That's the
0: correct answer thank you very much for that. <laughs> <It's been> like-
1: <laughs> i think the the silver lining there's just an article i read in like salon or slate um that was like you know, look, the last decade, I always remind people that, like, the news on the internet is a new phenomenon. We're going to look back on this, hopefully, if the world's still not on fire. We're going to look back on this several decades down the road and look at these days as the Wild West of trying to figure out what kind of news model works sustainably on the internet. We spent the last decade trying one thing out. Uh, I think that we have now seen that that's not going to work. And we had the financial situation that was uniquely positioned to, infuse these startups with billions of dollars in capital, we found that they weren't able to really turn that into a sustainable recurring audience. Now we're trying a different approach. I think it's smaller, it's more targeted, it's more fundamentals oriented. These are all positives. I think so much of the last decade was like, this has never been done before. Could it work? What ambition? And it's like, oh, you know, Things are the way they are for a reason. I think going forward, we're going to get back a little bit to some of the the thinking that has traditionally informed the news business. Uh, even though, unfortunately, thousands of journalists had to lose their jobs for the industry to kind of like learn this lesson. Um, I think we're going forward a little bit more clear eyed about what works and what doesn't work.
0: Yeah, and we see in tech and media as well, that sometimes these things lead to a lot of creativity and some of those who've lost jobs in one place come together and build something new and exciting. So there's, yeah. which can then be swept up by mergers and acquisitions. Of the, <laughs> anyway, no, we're ending on a, yeah, we're ending on a positive. Mark, it's been great having you back on the show. Where can people keep up with all your fantastic work?
1: I would say Twitter, but who knows if it'll still be around in a week. Uh <sighs> But I'm on, I'm Mark Stenberg three on Twitter. And then you can follow me on, on ad week, uh, rec- reporting on the media industry.
0: Uh, I'm at Charlotte A. Henry on the Twitters, hopefully. Um, Obviously, if you're listening to me on Substack, I hope you're subscribed to the newsletter. Why not share it and bring someone else into the edition community? That's obviously at theedition.substack.com. You could also listen to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Mark, thanks again so much for joining me. I'll see you all next week.